You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Andrew Kaplan. This sounds so weird. You're listening to Beyond the Plate with Cappy. I just love to be in a kitchen. I really do. Even when I'm pissed off, I'm happy. Hey everyone, this is Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate, a podcast where I sit down in person with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Every episode, we share inspiring stories of what it means to be in today's bustling hospitality industry. For this episode, I sat down with the one, the only, Chef Scott Conant at his brand new, beautiful, and delicious restaurant in New York City, Fusco. I don't know what that noise is. Keep it down! You probably know Scott from his restaurants, well, maybe in New York City, maybe in Miami, maybe in Los Angeles, or even Las Vegas, or Arizona. That's right, five different cities and states Scott's in now. His accolades are too long to list. You've probably read about him in the New York Times or Food & Wine magazine. His spaghetti pomodoro is the dish heard around the world. Yes, it's spaghetti and tomatoes, but it is mouth-watering and a life-changing dish. Not as life-changing as his polenta dish, but when I say that this dish changed my life, this dish literally changed my life. I wouldn't be where I am today without this polenta dish of Scott Conan's. I hope you guys get a kick out of that story. And for all you Chopped fans out there, Scott is a regular judge. Maybe you know him as Handsome Scott Conant, or maybe I just made that up. I don't know. Anyhow, I've known Scott for quite a while, but the best part for me about doing these podcasts is learning new things about a chef. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Chef Scott Conant. Let me talk about spaghetti. Every fucking publication has written about your spaghetti yeah, with red. That's kind of crazy. It's delicious, of course, but did you just put it on the menu and it took off? How did that work? And is that, I mean, of course, it's a good thing when someone talks about this dish that's so great, but is it ever annoying in the sense of? I mean, I wouldn't say annoying as much as it's, listen, you know, I look at Evan Funky, you know, Evan, uh, who's Felix in, in LA. I look at him as a pasta artisan, right? That guy, if you've ever had his pasta before, it's amazing, right? Like the quality of the pasta itself is sublime in unparalleled, frankly. But I don't think of myself like that because I'm not like that. I don't make pasta like him. I, I think I make really good pasta, but I, I think I'm a really good cook. I'm a little biased. I think I know how to make things taste good. You know what I mean? And one of the things that I work with my team is creating layers. Like it's got to be about layers. Some of the best food I've ever had in my life wasn't about the salt content or you know, a piece of pork belly. It was about layers, right? It's about, you know, how do, how do you create that perfect bite, right? So there's, you know, different things that happen. There's layering flavors, creating foundation, creating depth, soul. So I think I could do that. I think I could do it pretty well. You know, I think that if I don't do it right away, I, I get to the point of creating that. So one of the things about that pasta pomodoro is, is that there's a lot of layers to it. And, you know, there's a perfect acid content from fresh tomatoes. I don't use canned tomatoes, which a lot of people think is like sacrilege. I use a semolina-based pasta, which is fresh. It's a sum of its parts. I use, I cook that tomato sauce for about 40 minutes. You know, it's not cooked for a long time. My mother cooks a tomato sauce for 24 hours. So I think those are little things that make it special, create this infusion of olive oil with garlic and crushed red pepper. And then I steep basil 
in directly inside that sauce and I strain that oil into that same sauce and emulsify it, but never buzz it because then it becomes too aerated. And I only use a potato masher to crush those tomatoes so that it's, as it cooks, it's just crushed, right? So kind of like a crushed canned tomato, but this is all fresh. Is it special? I I mean, I think it's really good. You know, I I think it's really good and I'm glad that it makes people happy. I ate last night as I was consuming all those plates of squidding chalatiele. There was an extra spaghetti and I just tasted it. I was like, fuck man, that's just, it's just good, man. You know, it's just good. And people are like, well, it's the butter you add at the end or, oh, it's the fresh basil and the butter and that's what makes it different. That's all it is. It's not what it is. You know, it's not. People hate it. People like it. Ultimately, whatever gets you in the restaurant and whatever we can do to get you back, right? That's, 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 that's what I do. It's fantastic. And I just, you know, you talk, I talked to various chefs all over and they're like, that freaking blog is talking about my dish. And I'm like, well, don't, they're writing about you. Yeah, man. How's that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to set the tone for us where we are, the new digs? The new digs. Yes, we are here at Fusco in New York City. Did you hear that little? I like it. Fusco is on 43 East 20th Street in Manhattan. New restaurant opened up about seven weeks ago, and we are kicking and screaming. It's going really well. A lot of happy people. Yeah. A lot of I happy like it. people. I like it. It's a cozy spot. Yeah. It's about 50 seats in the dining room. It's about what we can handle, so to speak. It's really, it's a tiny space. It's a good, good sized bar up front. You know, I've always wanted a restaurant with a chandelier and here, here we have three. So it looks a little more elegant than what it is. You know, when it's full of people and the music is bumping, I have like Zeppelin and Dylan and, and like just, and Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and Hank Williams. And it has a good vibe inside the space. You know, it's the music that I listen to, but it's named after my grandmother, Fusco. It was her maiden name. Nice. That's cool. I actually have a confession. I was here the other night. When I saw you at Noor, across the street. Did you come over here? Yeah, I was here first. Son of a bitch. You didn't (laughs) tell me that. What happened? It was fantastic. We had a wait at Noor. I came over here with Lauren, who I was with, and we sat at the bar. We were just going to get a cocktail. And we're like, should we get a snack? Yeah, we probably should get a snack if we're here. And then I saw the polenta on the menu. And so you had the polenta. Yeah, we yeah. had the polenta. And I, <laughs> honestly, I, I, like, I kind of hid my face. I hid myself. Why? You, you walked by Did one I point. walk by? Yeah, but I turned the other way. Why didn't you? I don't know. I just didn't. That's kind of creepy, bro. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of weird. You can, you can tell me when you're here. I know. I just wanted to sneak in and try the polenta and not have you know I was here. Well, hopefully the polenta didn't disappoint. It didn't. Good. Let's talk about polenta. I've told you the story, right? Well, tell it again because I like it so much. Okay. So Scott and I met 12 years ago plus on the Wine and Food Festival circuit, if you will. Yeah. I was working for the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. It was probably 2004, five, somewhere around there. You were doing ago. an event at Sobe and you had served your polenta dish mm-hmm. with the mushrooms and truffle mm-hmm. and it was obviously delicious. And then a couple months later, I ran into you in Aspen and you were serving a polenta dish. And then <laughs> the next month, there was an event that Dean Faring had when he was at Manch on Turtle Creek. Yes, he made me serve and the you polenta, were serving dish. The polenta yeah. dish. And I got in line and I was like, hey man, uh, you're serving polenta again? And you're like, dude. And there was a long line of people I didn't know. And he's like, could someone get this guy away? He's following me everywhere <laughs> to all these events I do around the country and harassing me about my dish. So anyway, this led to, I was making t-shirts. I still make culinary related t-shirts, but I was making t-shirts at the time for fun as a hobby, but that said different things. They were non-food yet. And I was like, you know what? And I was pulling up to a t-shirt shop in Chicago. I'm like, I'm going to make a fucking polenta shirt. And I'm going to take a yellow shirt and write polenta in brown, (laughs) like as a joke. 
And I did it. Flash forward a couple years later, I'm at South Beach Wine and Foods. I get a call over the radio. Someone's like, yo, you got to go pick up Rachel Ray at the hospitality suite. And I knew her, but like barely. Yeah. And I walk in, she's like, oh, Polenta, cool shirt. Where'd you get that? And I was like, what, what do you mean? She's like, that's a neat shirt. I was like, oh, I made it. She's like, well, I don't get it. She's like, well, can you make me one? I was like, yeah, I mean, if you want, but it's, it's just like a shirt. She's like, well, maybe we should start a business. Can I give you like 10K? And I was like 23 years old at the time. I was like, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, you can give me 10K, yeah. sure. <laughs> and then I hopped in a golf cart to drive her down the beach, how that yeah. rolls in, in Miami. And she's like, yeah, cool. Take my number and my husband, John, and you know, I'll give you 50K or whatever you need to get started. And I was like, what the F just happened to me. That is crazy. And so that's how we connected and started selling t-shirts when she launched her magazine in 2005. And then I wound up moving from Miami to New York in 2006 to work with her when she launched her daytime show, all because of your polenta dish. That is the craziest story ever. Yeah. That's awesome. It's so crazy the way like circles are connected. It's unbelievable. I don't think I told you a story like a year or two ago. Yeah, it was relatively recently. And I mean, you got a Chicago style hot dog shirt on right now. So yeah, I have Chicago style underwear. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I, uh, yeah, but you know exactly that, what that means. <laughs> So you're everywhere right now, I feel like, in a fantastic way, because I've been to your restaurants in Vegas and here. But will you just rattle off where your restaurants are right now? My most recent opening is here in New York City, Fusco. I have a place in Phoenix called Mora Italian, a place in L.A. called The Ponte in uh, kind of Beverly Grove, West Hollywood. How's that? It's awesome. It's all three are awesome. And then I have, I'm kind of peripherally still involved with the Scarpetta in, it's Scarpetta by Scott Conant in Miami and Scarpetta by Scott Conant in Las Vegas. So it's those five. That's awesome. It's good. Yeah, it's good. I got a lot. I got a lot of things I want to do. So more? <laughs> it's good. Oh yeah, I'm, do, I'm doing a few more. I'm doing restaurant up in the Catskills. Resorts World is doing a casino in the Catskills and I'm doing a signature Italian steakhouse there. They're all, all Italian. Italian. Yeah. Will they always be Italian? I don't know. I don't know. I was thinking about doing some Mediterranean stuff. My wife is Turkish, so we go to Turkey every year. I have a home in Bodrum. It costs like 20 bucks to build a house in Bodrum. So I, I'd recommend it. Do you have any lots you can. nearby? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll, give you, I'll give you one. <laughs> give me a t-shirt. I'll trade you. Done. We get there quite a bit and I've cooked a lot of Turkish food obviously since I've been married which is it'll be 10 years in September uh, married to her so yeah we, we we got married in Turkey and she grew up kind of back and forth between Brooklyn and uh, in Turkey so it makes it makes a little bit of sense to have a, a Mediterranean feel or at least kind of open the scope a touch you know where did you grow up I grew up in Oakville Connecticut I'm a Connecticutter, the nutmeg state. For real? Yeah, for real. It's a real thing. I've never had Connecticut nutmeg, but it is the nutmeg state. That's Locally grown nutmeg? <laughs> you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother and a younger sister. I'm in the middle, which probably says a lot about my years of therapy. Says a lot about, <laughs> says a lot about me. <laughs> what were holidays or, or family meals like in the, in the Conant household? So my mother is a first-generation Italian-American, and my father's family came to this country in 1622. So if you ever go to Salem, Massachusetts, there's a big statue of a guy named Roger Conant. And that's my great, 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 whatever, grandfather. He was the first governor of Massachusetts that reported to the king, the king of England. He was also in the food business. He was actually, I guess he traded salt. I think that was his, his main occupation and an entrepreneur. And yeah, and he founded Salem. So nothing to do with the witch trials. That was in the 1620s. Witch trials were in the 1670s or 90s or something like that. But 
Yeah, he had 11 children. All of them passed away with the exception of one. I think his name was Lot, Lot Conan. And then, you know, there was kind of two families of the Conans that kind of split off. One went to the north of Maine, where my father was. My, they stayed up in farming potatoes in, the, in Arista County, way up in the north, in the north of Maine. And uh, so my father grew up on a potato farm. So that idea of, you know, the table was very important to my child. Also, I was a chubby kid, so you know, it's all about food. <laughs> <laughs> it's always... All about food. Always, always about food. What was your first early food memories as a kid? I always have this memory of my grandmother, who Fusco is named after her, her maiden name. I always have this memory of her sitting at a big table with a pasta board, just kind of rolling out pasta, cavatelli, orecchiette, stuff like that, like hand rolling it, things like that. That's. Did you start helping her? No, I mean, she passed when I was young, but that's the food memory, right? Yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing of, you know, radicchio and basil. For me, it's a smell. Yeah, basil. I can't smell basil to this day without thinking my grandfather's garden. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's the craziest thing. It's, you know, just walking in a farmer's market, you know, as the wind blows and you just kind of get that waft of basil. It still brings me back to my child. It's funny the way that nostalgia kind of creeps up on you. The sense of scent, I feel, is the strongest connection to nostalgia for me. And music is probably second. Mine is the smell of butter melting in a pan. I feel like every morning I woke up, my mom, that's how she started. Eggs, Eggs or stuff. something. Yeah. It's just a good scent. I'll melt butter for a dish. I was doing it yesterday and I would I'll lean my head over yeah, the pan. Smell like, smell it. It. Yeah, smell it. It's awesome. My father used to have that Maxwell House can of bacon fat. And that's what he would fry our eggs in. I mean, that's such an old school thing. I mean, I don't know anybody who does that anymore. I'm sure it exists. I'm sure it does. I'm not going to say it doesn't exist anymore, but just definitely not in my circle. Do you keep butter on, out or in the fridge? I don't use butter. So I have... Oh, your oil. I kind of. I, I use mostly extra virgin olive oil. I use very little butter at home. In the restaurants, I use butter. But um, at home, we kind of keep a dairy-free, gluten-free home because of my, my, one of my daughters is, is meant to be gluten-free and dairy-free. So it's one of those crazy things. How many daughters do you have? I have two daughters, seven and four. Isla and Katia. My wife is like, you know what? I get the first name because you get the last name. <laughs> and I got to tell that's you, that's deal. kind of like, you know, it's kind of, kind of smart. I, it's hard to argue with that. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. I love that. Is there a first amazing meal that you remember? I loved a lot of meals, but the first most amazing one was probably, I was probably not 20 or something yeah. like that. But. Yeah, for like a fancy dining. I mean, I remember loving food, but my first like big fancy dining experience. Oh, Jesus. I mean, I had to be... 19 or 20. Yeah, probably 19 or 20. I moved to New York, New York City when I was 19. So that, you know, sitting for a long, lavish meal like that, I had never done that before. So I went to Les Panas when I was 19. Actually, I went, you know what? True story. I went to Le Cirque. It was her, it was my girlfriend's birthday at the time. So I took her to Le Cirque and it's so funny. I remember this vividly. It was late because I had to work. So I finished work. I snuck out early, got changed, went to the restaurant. My girlfriend and I at the time, we walk in together and they sit us at the bar just to have a cocktail. And then we sit down at this beautiful corner table looking, overlooking the entire dining room. And, and if you've never been to the original Le Cirque, it was a magical little spot. I mean, it really was beautiful. Syria was there and his sons were there. I mean, and then Chuck Mangione, you know, Chuck Mangione, the, the jazz player. Yeah. The captain walks over and says, I understand it's your birthday. Chuck Mangione is here and he'd like 
to play happy birthday to you. So he stands up with his, you know, I'm going to call it a trumpet. I don't know what the actual, I don't know what the thing actually was, but it was a trumpet. And he starts playing happy birthday to my girl at the table. And everybody in the dining room is just like stopping and watching us. I was like, this is unbelievable. And then he proceeded into the, his famous song. Dun, 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 dun. Like he's playing it right in the dining room. It was unbelievable. That's super cool. It was really special. You know, the meal was fine, right? But the takeaway from, I think for a, for a young cook, I was working at Sunday Medical at the time. The takeaway for me wasn't about the food. It was about what that level of service can bring to your restaurant. I mean, that was like, that was amazing. What was your first job you ever had? My first job, I was a dishwasher at a restaurant called The Sea Loft in Waterbury, Connecticut. I was 15. It was 1986, 31 years ago. It's a fucking long time ago. <laughs> I don't know if I could say that. Yeah. I don't know if I could drop F-bombs. But say, yeah, that was a want. fucking long time ago. <laughs> Jesus. And then you said you had, you moved to New York when you were 19. Did you work for You went to CIA? To I went, I, so so yeah, I went to CIA and then I did my externship here in the city. I met some people. I was here and I went to New Orleans. I took a leave of absence for a while, opened up a restaurant in New Orleans. It was my first sous chef job. Went back to school, finished school, moved to Germany. Moved to Germany to work because I figured it'd be easier to get a job in Italy from Germany than from New York. You know, on paper, it makes a lot of sense. But I moved to Germany. I knew nobody. The people I knew were here in New York. Why Germany? <laughs> because it was closer to Italy. Okay. That's why. And it was an opportunity to have a European experience, and I'd never been to Europe before. So I remember landing, coming down in the plane. It was snowing. It was so picturesque and beautiful, like coming into Munich, I, flying into Munich, and the snow was falling. There's these little, it's Bavaria, you know? It's like beautiful. This hills and snow on the ground, these little beautiful shacks and wood homes and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh my God, this is like breathtaking. How long were you there for? I was there for a little over a year. And did you go, you wound up going to Italy? No, 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 not from there. I had to come back to New York (laughs) and then I would steal away to Italy. I I wouldn't be able to, I never actually got that job. I went to Italy, I would go to Italy for two weeks, for a month, for two months, three months, something like that. But I would never actually go and live there and work there. I just couldn't find a position. I wasn't in a position where I could, um, where I financially work for free. I just, I don't have that kind of background. So I just, you know, I could steal away for a little while and travel. The good news was I had a lot of friends there. So I'd fly into Italy, drive to one of their restaurants or where they would work, have dinner, maybe work a day or two in the kitchen, ask them where I should go next. And they'd call a friend in a different city and they'd say, go there and, and, you know, ask for this guy and I'll help you out. And, you know, Italians are so good at that. And that's what I would do. And I would stay for a week, stay for two weeks, whatever it was, and then come back home. I'm also a CIA graduate and you were touching on some great points there with how you just got through not living in Italy, but getting that experience. What's the most valuable lesson you think you learned from culinary school? And what advice would you give to current or future culinary or hospitality students? You know, I think my most important lesson, there's a lot of really smart kids when I went to school at CIA, rather a lot of like really older than me. I was one of the younger students in my, definitely in my you know, like block, my, my class. And one of the things I learned was it has nothing to do with how smart you are. You know, I, I wasn't, I'm not, I'm still not that book smart guy. My strengths were when it came to cooking, you know, but all these smart people that got all these A's, get them in a kitchen, the theory's out the window and now it's practical. And I excelled at that. That's when I started to get really good grades and really good, really, really good in classes. And that's when I felt like my own sense of confidence came into play. I I don't lack confidence. You know me well enough. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I, I, I remember 
vividly these really intelligent, I was so intimidated because I'd never, you know, in Waterbury, Connecticut, this level of clever and intelligence didn't necessarily, I, I just wasn't surrounded by people like that. So I was super intimidated. And then when it came to cooking, it all shifted. You know, the paradigm shift happened and I was like, Actually, this is how you do that. This is something as simple as caramelizing onions. Like you guys don't know how to toss onions in a pan. That was one big takeaway for me that as life went on, not to be intimidated by the clever. And it wasn't that I was a bully. I was never one of those people. I've, I've always been a really friendly guy, but focusing on my strengths, which was actually my work ethic, the practical application of cooking. You were at CIA though, when there was kids going to CIA to become cooks and chefs. I was at CIA during that transition point where we were going for that, but halfway through when I was there, Food Network started to become Food Network, and there was kids enrolling because they were going to go be on Food Network. It's kind of crazy that it's also funny to me that you see a lot of people now who are still trying to get onto the Food Network, and they're, they were actors, and they couldn't make it as actors, so now they want to, like, oh, I love food. Now it's like, oh, food and lifestyle. I'm waiting to see what's next. If they can't make it in food and lifestyle, what's the next thing? You know, <laughs> we'll see. Who did you look up to in the industry when you were cooking? Oh, man. I graduated January of 92. Uh, it was like January 4th, something like that. Just to digress for a second, CIA, they have a semi-new curriculum, but I think I had the same curriculum you did, and it was every three weeks. There was a new class starting CIA, a new class graduating from the CIA, a new class leaving for externship, and a new class coming back for externship. So whenever you talk about someone who went to CIA, they give these, like, I think that was March 2002 or something, (laughs) and everyone's like, why are you giving me a month? That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's important to qualify that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I forget those things. You know, if you go to CIA, you don't have a traditional education, right? So your time frames are all screwed up. At the time, there was only a two-year program. There was no opportunity for a bachelor. So it was only an associate's degree. It was only a two-year program when I was there. And there was no pastry program at the time. Like all that stuff came much later on. But what was the question again? Who you looked up to. Oh, who I looked up. So that was a time when it's funny how the great restaurants... They're kind of still around. The Bernardin was one of the best restaurants. Boulet was one of the best restaurants in the city. You know, it was like David Boulet and what's his name? Lacoste, the chef who had passed away, the Eric Repair took over from, was it Bernard Lacoste or something like that? Whatever, whatever his name was. He was one of the, the big guys. Daniel, Daniel was at, at Le Cirque at the time. Daniel Boulou was, you know, Jean-Georges had just left Lafayette and he opened up Jojo. And some of the students in my class had gotten a job at Jojo because they were just about to open. All those guys... They're still relevant. So I mean, crazy. think about it. It's 25 years later. They are still relevant. JG is still relevant, yeah. more relevant today than he was back then. I mean, and that for me is so inspiring and so interesting. 25 years later, they're still at the tip of your tongue. How do you do that? You know what I mean? Like, how do you do that? That's insane. That's an interesting segue because you, as we talked about, you have New York, Arizona, LA, Vegas, Miami. You're also a regular judge on Chopped on Food Network. So it's always funny to me when when chefs are on there, chefs who have restaurants are on there because I feel like the kitchen is so bustling. And then, you know, behind the scenes of shooting food, it's kind of like a waiting game and takes a while. It does take a while. (laughs) Yeah, People people ask me how long it takes to shoot uh, an episode of Chopped and it's about a 10 to 12 hour day for that 47 minutes. It's crazy. <laughs> 44 minutes. 44. <laughs> How do you think TV changed the way people look at chefs? Well, it's interesting, right? Because 
This is kind of a loaded question. I mean, it's 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 a loaded question, but I can speak for myself because I've been doing this for a pretty long time in New York City. I got my first review in 1998. That's almost 20 years ago. Ruth Rachel gave me a review at a restaurant called Chianti on 55th and 2nd Avenue. And I was 26, 27. And it's funny because I have right here in Fusco, I have these people that walk in and like I used to eat your food. A woman last night sat on table 10, position two, <laughs> said to me, you don't remember me, do you? There's just no way in hell that I remember this woman. I like, I, you know, it could be from anywhere. Like, I, I've been married for a long time, honey. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she was like, I used to come to Chianti all the time and I would sit with this other regular customer. And I was like, of course, I didn't remember. But that's not important. But the, the thing is, is that, you know, here it is almost 20 years later, these people remember my food, you know? I mean, that's really flattering. So it's good to have that level of customer base and kind of recognition in the sense that people take me seriously as a real chef. Not to say that Food Network chefs aren't real chefs. I want to qualify this. But then you have other people like Alton Brown, who's a great personality, not a chef, probably a fantastic cook. I've never had his food, but knows food very well. And again, this goes back to the non-practical application, but the study of food itself, he's very good at it. And I'm sure he knows how to cook at home. But if you were to walk in and run a kitchen or jump on a line, probably, I don't know. I mean, it may or may not happen, right? But he's a food personality. Rachel's a food personality. Rachel's not going to jump on the line in a restaurant. So <laughs> she's a very good cook, by the way. But being a chef and being a cook have really nothing to do with each other. You know, I look at chefs like Emeril. Emeril's a real chef. You know what I mean? Mario. Mario's a real chef. Bobby. Bobby is, he's an unbelievable yeah, cook. Man. He's a food. fantastic chef. I mean, you know, runs really good restaurants. By the way, Bobby is probably the smartest guy in the room. You know what I mean? And same with Mario. You ever sit down with Mario and have a conversation with him? It's like, Jesus, I don't, I don't want to match wits with this guy. Yeah. He's like unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> Were you ever chopped from a kitchen as a cook? So was I ever fired? Is that what you mean? Or like kicked off the line or Maybe. something like that? No, I took myself out of the game once. I remember working, oh, I first had gotten back from Europe and I was uh, in the kitchen at San Domenico and I was so, like we just started getting busy. I started to get so sick and like I was vomiting. I don't know if it was nerves or if, oh, I don't know what was going on. I was not, I did not feel good. I was just a mess. I like, I would, you know, just spent the evening in the bathroom. Sous chef took over my station and then I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. It was just... Did you come back the next day? Yeah, I came back the next day. And I was there for four and a half years. I mean, yeah, they, they weren't getting rid of me that easy. What was the last restaurant experience or dish that stopped you in your tracks? I know those things don't happen that often anymore, you know? There's a Japanese restaurant downtown. I was having dinner and it was like this little chawanmushi with sea urchin on top, but it was really kind of different. I don't know if the chawanmushi was made with like clam or clam stock or something like that in addition to, and then the uni on top and a little, this little glaze over the top of it. But that was pretty awesome. I almost ordered a second one. We'd been there a couple of times because it's right close to bar and books. So bar and books, like you could, you know, have a scotch and smoke a cigar afterwards when you're feeling like a big shot, which happens very, very infrequently. <laughs> it's a hard question. I always try and think of the last thing I ate because there's so many these yes, days. And yes. it goes back to what you're saying about being a well-rounded restaurant from service and hospitality yeah. in front of the house. I mean, it's from when you, the second you walk in the door. That's right. Really? Because right. I could come in here and get a plate of pasta, but there's more than a hundred other restaurants that I could also get a plate of pasta. That's right. So what's going to make me come back here? There's probably restaurants where the food's better, right? There's probably another restaurant where the vibe is better, the mood is better, the ambiance is better, the service is better, but very few places can put it all together, right? And I think when you get it right, that's how you become 
that 25 year later person, right? Also tapping into the talent that you have that keeps you relevant. It's not just that Danielle is a phenomenal cook and a phenomenal chef. It's also he surrounds himself with phenomenal people. So they help keep him relevant 25 years later. His chef and his sous chef and his chef de cuisine at Danielle help keep him relevant because they're coming up with that with a lot of those new dishes within the confines of Danielle's vision. And I'm sure that he navigates the waters for them as well. And I'm sure that he streamlines it. If you look at some of Danielle's old dishes, you know, go into Art Culinaire from way back in the day, look at those dishes and compare them to some of the dishes that are on his website today. They have nothing to do with each other. He's evolved as a chef over the last 25 years. That restaurant has evolved. His various restaurants have evolved over the years. I remember going to the old Danielle when it, it was in the space where Cafe Blue is currently and having like having this meal that just like, it blew my mind, right? I was probably 27. I remember having this seared foie gras with blueberries and this vitello tonato, which, which was a raw tuna dish and a roasted sweetbread dish with this tuna sauce on the raw tuna and a veal jus with the sweetbread and this braised short rib dish that changed the way I braise and cook, right? And it was just, how many meals can you say that you've had like that? By the way, I just said I was 27. That was 20 years ago. And I still remember three of the courses that I had that night. How do you put it all together? That's the key. Restaurants are Rubik's cubes. You know, there's a million ways to put them together, but not a lot of people can do it, you know? I just made that analogy up. I fucking love it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So many people think you're very generous within the culinary community with your time. Can you share any causes that you're most passionate about in giving back? You know, I do a lot of charity work. We all do. As chefs, we all we all spend a lot of time. Alex's Lemonade. Um, I Which do is a- one of the reasons that I started this because restaurants can be successful and make money, but they're not gigantic money machines. Nobody's retiring on restaurants right. anymore, right? So that, I, I kind of want to highlight how generous you all are. So I do a lot of stuff with Alex's Lemonade, which, you know, anything with kids is heart-wrenching uh, for me, especially being a father. So Alex's Lemonade is children with cancer. It helps the families who have children in cancer research. I do a lot of stuff for a Las Vegas-based charity, which is, there's a guy named Larry, Larry Ruvo, who's a good friend. His father had passed away from Alzheimer's. So he started this really spectacular center called Lou Ruvo's Center for Brain-Related Diseases. And he partnered with Cleveland Clinic and built this beautiful Frank Gehry building in Las Vegas for Alzheimer's for brain-related disorder research. And I do a lot of stuff with that because Larry's a really good friend. You know, if you've ever had a family member who's had uh, Alzheimer's or dementia or any of these brain-related disorders, it is just, it's just, I feel like they're innocent victims. I do a lot of stuff with that as well. And I'll do other things for Wounded Warrior, different one-offs here in there. I'm a believer. I'm a compassionate person by nature, right? So I can't spend all my time doing that stuff because it just takes away from, it. I lose focus and I can't do it all uh, all the time. I'm not independently wealthy to be able to <laughs> spend my time away from working and also spending time with my family. One of the things I love to do though is spend time with the team in each restaurant and kind of motivate and coach. I feel like just being present with a lot of the team members, with the staff members in the restaurant is a really good way to give back. I come from an extremely middle-class family in Waterbury, Connecticut, right? I grew up in Oakfield, but very middle-class. And when I first started cooking, the idea of owning restaurants was so far off. I thought maybe at the end of my career, I could I could be the chef of a restaurant on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and just be in that restaurant every day. Turns out that's not my personality as well. Dreams are one thing, personalities are different. <laughs> right? So the, the idea of being kind of like tied 
tied to one restaurant is just, I can't think of a worse, just a, like a worse life. So that's the reason why I fly around all the time because I'm a little ADD. I need to kind of focus on different things. But spending that time with staff members and kind of coaching them and helping them be better, or at least at the very least, letting them know that you can dream about these things. You can do these things. You can be entrepreneurial. You can, you can, you can learn more about the business, the business of the business. You can surround yourself with good people. I always make myself available to people who've worked with me in the past, whether it's the contracts that they're going through, I can give advice to them on because I've made a lot of mistakes. I can introduce them to different friends of mine who are lawyers and attorneys that can then lead them into other instances where they can make better decisions or more educated decisions. That's just trying to make everybody's life better. That's different than a charity. No, but it's incredible. For me, that's like, that's improving someone's, helping improve someone's life, empowering them to make the right decisions, which I never had that person. That's really great. My guess is some of your cooks have excelled to sous chef positions and beyond, but do you have cooks that have been with you for a while or when they're with you for a certain point do you send them off to another restaurant of of a chef friend or something like that I I don't have a precise question but I remember back in the day Bobby Flay had mentioned you know if he has a sous chef or a cook that has been with him for two two and a half years they've kind of learned what they're going to learn with him and he calls a buddy I have a guy who works here at Fusco who's been with me are you ready for this since 93 my first sous chef gig he was a line cook and you know we've worked together ever since so he's been in every single restaurant that I've had in New York so <laughs> he's awesome his name is Cheppy he works morning prep he's not as young as he used to be so you know I gotta kind of right. like take, <laughs> take him out of the game but you know I remember when he got married I remember when his first kid was born and one of his kids just graduated high school those are the things for me that I like to think that I could potentially help make his life better also. Your daughters are four and seven, you mentioned, so maybe they're a little young for this, but how important is it for your daughters to watch you and learn the value of compassion and or giving back? They are wild, my older one in particular, wildly compassionate. I mean, it's almost like it's almost a bit too much. Isla is seven and she went in school one day. She took all the money out of her piggy bank and didn't tell us. She had $200 in her pocket and she walked into class and she just wanted to buy everybody ice cream. Like everybody in her class ice cream. The teacher was like, where did you get this money? She's like, I got it from my piggy bank. He <laughs> just like, give me that. She gave it to my wife when she picked her up from school. And my wife was exactly the same, you know, when, it, and it's like, all right, you know, we all want to be nice, but not at our own expense here. You know what I mean? Take it easy. <laughs> That's really funny. Let's do a speed round of questions. This game is called A Speed Round of Questions. Oh, that's a very clever name. <laughs> I don't know what that noise is. You heard, you heard, you heard that? Yeah, it's all good. Straining, right. straining some stock. Keep it down! <laughs> <laughs> First thing that comes to your mind, what did you have for dinner last night? I had, um, we, we made some menu changes here. So I put on the menu this chalatiele, which is a pasta, squidding chalatiele with pork belly and duya sausage and uni. And I think I ate like three bowls <laughs> of that. It was so damn good. I was like, I, I just make another one. Let's, you know, trying to tweak the recipe and stuff, but it was really awesome. It was really good. When was the last time you ate fast food? I feel like people in New York City don't eat fast food. We don't. Well, you know, I don't live in New York anymore. So I live in Scottsdale. You're based and I, there? I'm based in Scottsdale and New York. I, I spend a lot of time on a plane yeah. going back and forth. Okay. Yeah. So my wife and kids and I, we live in, in Scottsdale. I have an apartment here because I shoot here and, and obviously Fusco's here. So I spend a tremendous amount of time in New York. But when I'm home, and New York is kind of home. I lived here for 27 years. When I'm home, I feel like in Scottsdale, 
I feel like I'm on vacation. It's like the best thing ever. Sit in the pool. It's awesome. That being said, fast food. I don't eat fast food very often. What was it recently that I tried? What's a burger? Whataburger? Yeah. Is that what the name is? Yeah, I had a Whataburger. It was forgettable. (laughs) (laughs) Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Extra virgin olive oil with crushed red pepper and rosemary. I just love that when it's like really cooking slowly. And if you add butter to it, I used to work in a restaurant where we cook and then toss that in potatoes and then just bake those potatoes, like layer them up. You know, I know it's a basic scent. There's nothing really fancy about that, you know, like it's not, you know, sophisticated Thai flavors and curries and stuff like that. But it's like rosemary and butter and olive oil and crushed red pepper. But I just love it. Smell in the kitchen you hate? I am adamant when people flame something up and they're cooking that burn, that that acrid char, I, I like. I despise that. I despise that. So my next question was, what pisses you off in the kitchen? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many things. Oh my god, I'm a cranky chef. I'm always pissed off. <laughs> Nothing ever goes well. Last night, I had a moment. I had to rein myself in. We had a staff member try to carry three plates, and she didn't know how to carry three plates. So it's okay. Like, yeah. okay, we can learn that. That's fine. But don't try to do it because you look ridiculous if you don't know how to do it. And then you're walking in the room and you're like, you know, this accident's going to happen. Somebody bumps into you, it happens and dishes fall and sets the room back. It sets the kitchen back like it's a, it's a disaster. Yeah, that, there's that. What makes you happy in the kitchen? I just love to be in a kitchen. I really do. Even when I'm pissed off, I'm happy. I love to be in a restaurant. I actually, this, this moment before we're open, before the staff is here, I'll sit at a table. This is my table. I sit in this seat at this oh, really? table every time I'm at Fusco every day and I'll have meetings all day. I have, I'll have people stop stop in, we'll have a coffee together. I'll work, I'll pull my computer out, pull out the computer and work here. out in the kitchen, out of the kitchen. Like this is my, this, I love this. I love this. If you had nothing to do with food, what industry would you be working in? I have often contemplated this, right? So my, when I went to a vocational school for high school and I, my first choice was to be a plumber and I couldn't get into the program because too many people had applied. So as a second choice, I chose culinary arts, which serendipitously, thankfully, yeah. it all worked out. Turns out I hate physical labor. So that probably wouldn't have happened either. You, you know? could have been on HGTV instead of doing things on Food Network. That's right. I still wear my pants like a plumber every once in a while, <laughs> just, just for the hell of it. I, <laughs> I love that joke. <laughs> I said that to E.L. Dr. O once, you know, the guy who wrote Ragtime, yeah. uh, the author. And he just, he was, he busted up. He thought that was the funniest thing. He never, I said, I told him, I think you got to get out more often. It's not that funny. Like that joke's not that funny. You know, all these years later, looking back, I think I would probably be in marketing. Honestly, I think that, you know, there's so many similar things that we do as cooks and promoting ourselves or promoting the brands of restaurants or whatever it is, trying to tie those stories together. I mean, it's a form of marketing of sorts. So I don't know. I think so. It's funny enough, I have a lot of friends who are in marketing and advertising. I also have a lot of therapist friends. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. In closing out, what would you want people to say about the career of Scott Conan? Your legacy in the industry. My legacy. Oh, Jesus. Do we have to talk about legacy? I'm not that old. I'm not that old. Listen, man, I don't know if people are even going to think about me when I'm gone anymore. You know, I mean, is there there a PR company for death? You know, (laughs) you're only, I've learned, you're only as good as the PR company that you have. That's what I've learned. All in all, I think the takeaway for me would, would hopefully be that I always kept my eye on the goal. I'm, I'm always moving. I'm always working on something. I'm always doing things. I'm always trying to grow. I'm always trying to be better. And I'm trying to make the people who are with me better as well. And I allow myself to be better 
because of their efforts also. I'm not one of those guys who are going to be like, absolutely not. Like I'm always listening to both sides of the equation to make the best, most informed decision. Awesome. All right. We're going to end it. Thank you. Thank you. Quote, I'm a compassionate person by nature. One of the things I love to do is spend time with the team in each restaurant, be present with them, motivate and coach them to be better and learn more about the business. That's a really good way to give back. Thanks again to Scott Conant. Find more on him, his restaurants, and his whereabouts at scottconant.com. Join us next week when Beyond the Plate presents Just the Plate, a short segment where chefs describe a recipe sharing insider tips and tricks about what makes this specific dish meaningful to them. Not that this podcast is about me, but we only thought it was right for him to break down the dish that changed my life, his polenta dish. You may find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to www.beyondtheplatepodcast.com. We are also on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and we have a Facebook page. So like us there and share it with your friends. Thank you. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yeaton, and Shant Petrosian. Thank you all around. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.